Hello and welcome to this new episode of From University to Unicorns, a podcast that investigates how Australia can turn great research into future tech giants. This podcast has been lovingly put together by Natasha Rawlings, Alex Romero and Rom Bourave. It's sponsored by Uniseed, Australia's longest running investment fund that invests in early stage technologies coming out of their research partners. In this podcast, we went out and spoke to researchers, university leaders, business leaders, entrepreneurs, founders and government to find out what is stopping us from getting great research into the world and how we can do it better. This week, we ask what the challenges and solutions are for research commercialization. We interviewed some of the most respected leaders in the sector, starting with Anna Gorcholsky, previously the Director of Commercialization and Innovation at Macquarie University, then Professor Jim McCluskey, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research at the University of Melbourne, Professor Duncan Iveson, Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Sydney, and also previously Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research at the University of Sydney. Professor Z. Upton, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Research and Innovation at the University of Newcastle. Professor Guy Ford, Professor of Finance and Director of the MBA program at the University of Sydney Business School. And finally, Quinn Chang, Director of Enterprise Development at La Trobe University and Chair of Knowledge Commercialization Australasia Limited. Let's start with you, Anna. Why do we need to commercialize research? Well, you can do a lot on your own, but if you want to really get, you know, things up the technical readiness level from naught to nine, that's a a scale that people use. If you want something really done and done well and done fast, you can do it yourself and take six years, but you've lost the competitive advantage. No one needs it anymore. But if you want to do it properly and also with funding from another company, If you actually protect it and you actually offer it to industry, you'll get further research. So it actually adds to the core KPIs that you actually want. So people who want to get industry funding want to get research agreements. If you articulate the intellectual property that you have and the usefulness that it could be for someone, they will most likely fund you. They will either fund you through research or they will donate. You'll have People donate money if they can they can tell that they're actually then contributing to some worthy cause. So for me, it's commercialization is not just financial, it's that social impact, but it's all it's it's making it happen. And you know, it's collaborating with people to help. Thank you, Anna. And now to you, Jim. What do you think are the main reasons that universities, including yours, focus less on the commercialisation of research and more on pure basic research? Well, it's a great question and it's a kind of an existential question for us at, in yeah. universities. The, the reason being in a sense that universities, I think, are not designed to be commercial engines. They are places of discovery and deep scholarship, but that's a huge privilege to have particularly when you know, most of that is publicly funded. And so we do have an obligation to be very, very alert to when discoveries and scholarship have practical value that can basically enrich and add value to society. So we need to balance off these two. And that, that balancing act is done better in some places than, than others. You know, the US is sort of well known to be very good at this. And I think there are some exemplars in Europe and in Korea and Japan. And we 
have been, I guess, tagged as not being very good at this. And there's, there's some uh, truth to that. We're, we're not as efficient at this. If you look at our publication outputs and the quality and the citations, all the indices we use to measure excellence, and, and as a pro-rate that to, say, you know, Harvard or Stanford or other universities that are good at commercialisation and say, well, pound for pound, are we writing as many patents, licensing as many bits of intellectual property, spin, spinning out as many companies pound for pound as those universities, and we're not. We're well below what we should be given the level of scholarship we've got. Mm-hmm. The question you ask is why is that? I, th- I think the, the core issue is that the, there's two sides. One is we don't know how to do it very well. We don't have the human infrastructure needed to guide this process. You need to have commercially savvy people who know what steps are needed to take a very good idea, a very good discovery, some original invention of some sort, to take that to the marketplace. There are, it's a lot of skill needed, a lot of steps needed, and it's very different from normal mainstream academic work, and it's time-consuming. So the minute the academic starts having endless talks with potential investors and is getting nowhere, they give up. And that needs to be chaperoned and there needs to be help. The ones who have succeeded have succeeded despite the system, not because of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so there's one challenge. It actually requires a skill set that is not ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. The second challenge is culturally we have tended to reward traditional scholarship more than we have commercialization. Papers published in high-profile prestigious journals, conference appearances, international prizes for your work, those measures of success have carried more clout in our um, university system in crucial aspects of university life, such as promotion, Mm -hmm. attracting students uh, to work with you, winning grants from funding agencies. And so those systems do need to even be more even-handed in the way they recognise different forms of scholarship and its expression. That's a big challenge. I often talk about the currency converter. What's the currency converter for a licensed patent that's taken up by a telco uh, and a very disciplined, impactful scientific paper in Nature or Cell or a monograph in Oxford University Press? There is no currency converter. It's, it's, you know, they're apples and pears. One of the um, new ways we interact with industry is we listen. So, you know, the, the, the historical way of dealing with industry was to put, the, you know, the heroic uh, esteemed professor in front of the CEO and, and the professor would then do a magnificent job of, uh, of explaining the solution to a problem that the company doesn't have. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and so we, we listen. What are your problems? What might be amenable to R&D? Where, where might we be able to help you? And it has to start with conversations. Yeah. It has to start with trust. It has to start with mutual interest. And there's a degree of impenetrability, like where do I go in a university? So we're trying to open the door. We've got a kind of a concierge system so that if you have a problem, if you can call up and say, look, I have a problem with this. Who who do I talk to in the university? We we try to get back to people in 24 hours. That's great. We've got internal systems for scanning who might have these skills. So we're trying to open the door for what has been 
traditionally pretty impenetrable black box. I, I meet a lot of people who think that because I'm head of research at the University of Melbourne, I can go tell anybody on campus what they're going to do. Well, it's not the way we work. Yeah, well, yeah. We are a series of sort of individual franchises masquerading as a collective. And and so a lot, most of our research is researcher-inspired. It's not – we manage to corral it by – by inspiring the researchers to work together towards certain big grand challenges like a bionic eye or a you know, mm. decarbonisation or whatever. And, um, and so universities are not mission-based organisations, but they can, co- they can contribute to missions. CSIRO is a mission-based. You know, yeah. ANSCO and Defence Science Technology Group, they've got very focused Mission. Goals. We're much yeah. more Catholic. But harnessing that is a bit harder. Mm, mm. But it's worth it. It's worth it because one of the things we, because we're not mission-based, we're comprehensive. And so, you know, I was just talking earlier about, about genomics because we have this fabulous partnership with the genomics company Illumina. And genomics is a complex new initiative. It's not just a medical technology for diagnosis mm. and monitoring of disease. It's, it's about human identity. It's about privacy. It, it's, a, it's about use and abuse of of complex information. It's about data storage. It's about data handling and data management. It's about, you know, new technologies entering the health system and how do we accommodate them and prove that they are worth it and add value and replace old technologies rather than just being additive and costing more. And that ultimately they impact on, you know, patient outcomes. Now, that's not a one-shot problem, you know. Yeah. That's a comprehensive, that requires multidisciplinary input. That's something we can do. Uh, it's more complex than spinning out a widget, but in the end, it's actually more impactful. I mean, one of the, one of the areas that I've been critical of in the past is the effectiveness of the R&D tax concession. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look at, you know, pu- the public expenditure, the Commonwealth expenditure on research is about $12 billion. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but it's hovered around 11 to 12 billion a year it's a lot of money big investment mm, mm. and if you look at you know how much of that goes to sort of blue sky research or potentially blue sky research it's you know the, the national health and medical research council does a lot of that that's about 850 900 million a year yep. the australian research council again about 800 million the csiro does quite a bit although it's much more applied mm-hmm. in general and you know they're probably well close to a billion a year so there's, you know, just under $3 billion. The R&D tax concession is $3 billion. So right. it's actually yeah. more than ARC, NHMRC and CSIRO combined. And I'm, I'm not sure that the same scrutiny is applied to that. That's applied to those other research investments. Mm, mm. And I think there would have been a real opportunity, for instance, to tie R&D tax, some of the R&D tax concession to uh, working with research providers, which would mean universities, research agencies, medical research institutes, CSIRO, et cetera. Thank you, Jim. And now to Duncan Iverson. So what do you think standing in the way of commercialising research? I mean, first of all, I'd say I think we beat ourselves up a bit on this one. Mm -hmm. I think it's been, I think the sector has transformed itself over the last four or five years in particular. And, you know, Uniseed is a great exemplar of that. You know, look, look at the work that Uniseed does now. And you can't tell me that there aren't fantastic commercialization opportunities and partnership going on between the venture capital sector and, and the Australian university system. So, look, 
Australian universities were, were really not focused on commercialization and industry engagement six, seven, eight, nine years ago. It was not really core business. It was kind of a bit of a fringe activity. We weren't really set up for it. We didn't really have you know, tech transfer offices and the skill set within the organization to, to do that well. And I think that's one thing that's really changed. The second thing that I think is changing, but not fast enough, is the venture capital landscape. I mean, Australia still, generally speaking, has less venture capital available for early stage. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah that's well even compared to the yeah. UK, Even compared to the UK, two yeah. or three times less, less than Canada, dramatically less than US, even more dramatically less than Singapore. Mm. And yet we have this trillion dollar superannuation industry just sitting there with mountains of cash who, for various reasons, have not come to the party. We don't have a lot of venture capital willing to invest at the risky edge, the risky end of the game. And that's where universities are. We are early in mm. the sort of commercialization game. And we that's something that I've learned coming into mm. this as a bit of a neophyte that we really need to understand and find a way to build bridges then from that mm. early stage IP, that early stage part of the system that we're at, finding bridges and, and, and you know, a pipeline into that upper levels of the tech readiness level so that we're mm. getting more investable stuff. I think one thing that is also holding us back a bit, and, and again, I think the Americans in particular do this brilliantly, and Stanford's another good example, is the movement from industry to university and back. Yeah. It's still a bit of an awkward sort of thing in Australia. It's not something that a lot well, of people do. It feels do. almost impossible because, yeah. you know, like as an industry person going off into startup, I know I can get a job back in industry if it all stuffs up. Like yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll have a few war wounds. Much and, harder you know. in academia. Much but harder you don't academia. get your job back generally, no. do you? So That's you right. leave That's this right. post that you've worked very, very hard for and you know when you say goodbye, you'll probably never have a chance of so getting that post again. Theme is... How do we then at least support the folks and the colleagues who are interested in that pathway, develop mm. the skills and capabilities to, to start down that path? And then, you know, they might go a certain way in that direction and step back. They might decide that they, they want to really go for it and, and maybe even reshape their career as a result. How do we make that an easier transition than it is now? Thank you, Duncan. And now to Z Upton. You know, just in Australia generally, what do you think the major barriers are of research commercialization? Like, why isn't Australia really, really good at this? What's what's standing in our way? Well, the single biggest difference that I felt when I was travelling between Australia and Singapore was the absence of industry and the absence of manufacturing. And so we used to be a country that did a lot more manufacturing and perhaps we didn't, you know, for whatever reasons, we allowed ourselves to do just-in-time, you know, procurement and we lost our ability to manufacture. We didn't have, I guess, the advantages of a, a lower-paid workforce but I think we should have transitioned to being a high-tech manufacturer because we've got people with skills that we've lost, you know, quite simply we've lost. And so I think those days of, I just think we got a bit lazy, to be honest. <laughs> really yeah, do. me too. Yeah. yeah. I just yeah. Think it was, life was a little bit too comfortable. And yeah. so um, that, that urgency to be doing things ourselves, to be creating ourselves was lost somewhere. And even things like the loss of the, you know, the small businesses. The small businesses used to employ many people. They used to have to innovate. They used to have to be creative. So I don't think that's helped Australia. Thank you, Z. And now to you, Guy. What do you do to facilitate research commercialization? So I do a lot of work where I take MBA 
students in teams and get them to work with researchers that are in the university. So yes, we have some researchers, we have scientists in the program. Uh, you were one, mm-hmm. right? So you came in with that perspective and you wanted to learn a bit more about business and finance and business models and so on. But I feel that right across universities, the researchers themselves are highly incentivized to produce their research papers. Uh, they spend months every year writing up for grants. That's what they're incentivized to do. And there's no doubt in my mind that they want their discoveries to have a positive influence on the world, but they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to go that next path, that that direction for taking what they have and then testing it out and proof of concept and what's the potential market for what they're doing. A needs analysis, Mm. you know, a, a lot of the time they'll just think that what they're doing has the potential to, you know, influence people positively but without really testing out whether there is an unmet need there. And then once you've discovered there perhaps is an unmet need there, that process of, you know, is it a medical device? Is it something you have to manufacture? Is it something a hospital has to, who's your, who's your customer? Is it a hospital? Is it a clinician? Is it a government agency? Is it a, an insurer? So that that's a lot for them to do. And there are various programs and courses that they get put through but a lot will say yep it's time consuming to do all of that and again we are incentivized just to publish and you know that's the pathway to winning more grants so I've taken the view that if I can partner researchers with teams of MBA students through structured workshops that uh, I run you are forming bonds of trust between the business students and the researchers. And that's really important. Once they start to understand each other's language, the business students are in a position to want to work further with the researchers and the business students themselves, you know, as we've just spoken about, there'll be somebody with a tech background. There'll be somebody with a, you know, a marketing background. So, this is of great interest to the researchers who say, I've actually got this pool of talent that I can draw on. And for the MBAs themselves, they realise if they can build trust with the researchers, then they have the potential to later on sit on advisory boards. They have the potential to actually become co-founders or co-investors. So this is of great interest to the MBAs because the M- MBAs realise that the future lies in the research that's being done in university. So if they can link into it and make the connections and start to work out what this means for future business models or future modes of care or whatever it might be, they're at the forefront. Clinicians, you know, doctors that are attached to universities with their as teaching hospitals and with their, their, their professorships, Think of management and business as the dark side because they're the ones that are going to say, sorry, we don't have the budget for what you're trying to do. And then the researcher says, but I'm going to save lives. And, you know, it's uh, so again, I think it's having an appreciation, each side understanding the other's needs and, and you know, so that the people in business and management are not the dark side, that they're actually here to enable and to facilitate and comes back to building trust. We've just done some work with the Faculty of Medicine, Health and Oz Biotech over a new precinct that will encourage innovation. And I think that's the interesting to hear when the often business 
um, will say, we come to a university and the university says, how much money have you got for yeah. us? <laughs> right. That's, and business says, well, that's not, a, that's not good enough. So again, comes back to building trust. How do we work together, you know, in partnership to develop solutions and outcomes? And look, in some universities, I think business would love to get in, but you know, the the the, the brick walls are high. You know, it's hard. how do you start to work with researchers and learn what they're doing? Um, so I think the the MBAs are almost cheeky enough to realise that by doing the MBA program, they're getting behind the the stand, sandstone walls and actually getting access to the scientists. I mean, I mean, I mentioned nanoscience quite a few times. There'd be businesses, uh, industry that would love to get access directly to what's going on in there, and they just can't. It's just, it, well, I shouldn't say that they, they they can. I know they're they're keen to be able to form those partnerships, but it's just how do you break through? But the MBAs are actually working with the researchers through the structured workshops. Then they are getting through, and they can take their learnings back to their industries. Thank you very much, Guy. And now to you, Quinn. Who are you, and what do you do? My name is Quinn Chang, and I'm the Director of Enterprise Development at La Trobe University. I'm also Chair of KCA, which is Knowledge Commercialization Australasia. I don't particularly share that view that Australians are bad at research, and I think it all depends on how you look at the data. And I think one of the recent sort of publications by ATT which is the Alliance of Technology Professionals, did a study on, on essentially global commercialization metrics and how Australia compared to the rest of the world. I think when you look at the, the commercialization metrics, when, when normalized against research expenditure, um, you'll see that Australia performs quite comparably to uh, the likes of the US, UK, Canada and Israel. So we're, we're up there in terms of the amount to put, you know, to put it simply, Natasha, that for every dollar we get for research expenditure, we actually perform on par with the, the big hitters around the world. So it's, I think it's something we should be quite proud of. And I don't think we should always, maybe we're too humble, Natasha. One thing we could be doing better is also telling our story better. I right. think that's one thing we yeah. probably don't do enough of and that's probably why we probably undersell ourselves at times in terms of commercialization. Yep. Okay, Rum, so we've spoken to a lot of people. You've cherry-picked some of the, I guess, the rhyming conversations that we've had with people. What were the things that stood out to you in terms of, you know, what is standing in research commercialization's way? And before you hit it, I think we should say that, you know, you come from a research and university background and I come from a pretty much purely commercial background with a five-year stint in universities. So, so, you know, we're going to see things a little bit differently. So what were the things that really struck you from these conversations? Yeah, you know, so it's interesting. I think a lot of research, good research is, is being done in universities. And it struck me that Jim said universities are not set up for commercialization. I think it was Duncan who also said that university or the role of universities is to do um, research and teaching, not to commercialize things. But we've got to get things out to people who need them. And we've heard a few barriers and we've heard one or two solutions to it. And maybe we're not, we also heard that we're actually not that bad. What did you think? <laughs> well, I also was struck from those two conversations about 
what universities were set up to do originally back in the, the Middle Ages and what they've continued to do. And I guess that's because I've never really asked myself that question before or heard anyone talk about it. So it's sort of, if the mission of universities is not about commercialisation, but understanding the world around us, answering humanity's curiosity and teaching the next generation who are going to be custodians of you know, the planet and, and our societies, then they're pretty important things. But I guess the, the pressure over time is to start getting things out into the world, that universities maybe have a different role. And when you consider the sort of crises that, you know, we have at the moment with the climate and also, you know, we've just lived through a pandemic, I guess these, are, these have a sharper focus than they have before. It was, I was also very interested to hear what Guy said about universities and culture, and I know we'll develop, you know, culture in a, another episode later. Yeah. But I thought what Guy said about universities is interesting. So the incentives are not biased towards commercialization. It's hard to get to to get over the high brick wall, and it's very hard actually to collaborate with you know businesses. And sometimes businesses are also seen as a dark side, you know, and there's we opposing universities and businesses. So obviously there's a bit of a gap here between maybe two cultures or two sets of incentives. I think that's really true. I think, you know, everyone, all of our interviews talked about changing incentives, changing incentives to be more industry focused, that you could be recognised for working with industry just as much as publishing papers. And I think that is, uh, you know, a terrific movement forward for getting researchers focused on doing different things and answering, you know, big questions that will have benefit to us all. I, yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff Guy talked about. And I think the language difference I certainly noticed in my role, this dirty thing, you know, the dark yeah. side. I've always found the way researchers talk about money quite interesting. It's almost, it's almost as if they don't want to acknowledge that, you know, there's, there's funding available other than grant money. It's, it's a little bit dirty perhaps. I don't know. It's, I, talking to people over time, it's, you know, they don't, they don't want their research to be shackled by expectations of where industry wants it to go to perhaps I, I don't know I never dug into that enough you know it's it's interesting and that's that goes back to a point that Jim made about research tax incentives so to get grants in as an academic or as a researcher it's very, it is extremely competitive and I think uh, Duncan will speak about this again in a different episode on universities so it's extremely competitive and it's pe often peer-reviewed so you've got to, what that means is before you do the work, you have to explain what you're going to do, what the impact is going to be. And you also have to explain that you're the best person in the world to, to um, do that research. What James said was interesting. He's saying he's opposing this to the tax incentive for businesses, saying that uh, businesses can do research, then apply for um, research tax reimbursement after the research was done without any scrutiny. So is that, does this you know, contribute to showing that you can get money more or less easily as a business? It's, it's, it seems easier to get money as a business than it is to get money as an academic. So it, does it mean that getting grants is, is, is harder and is it more noble? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, it's quite interesting because with my work with the New South Wales Chief Scientist Office and reviewing grants for the New South Wales Physical 
science grant and also with the latest bushfire grants. I'm always struck with university work that, you know, there is research to be done, but there is no path to commercialisation. And if there's no path to commercialisation, then I know then that new invention will never receive impact. So it might be harder to get those grants, but from my point of view, they're also very likely to ever leave the building. And so why give that money in the first place? So that's one thought. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the second thought is that maybe that shouldn't get as much yeah. money or maybe it should get more money if there's a path to impact. And maybe, you know, this is the whole new accelerating Australia plan with, you know, research being done for the pure purpose of mm. commercialisation. So maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the answer. But I can tell you from an R&D perspective and being an investor and having worked in startups for years that we wouldn't have probably survived mm. without those R&D tax incentives. And, you know, we have to do a lot of paperwork mm. as we go along to talk about what the research is that they were, we're working on and, and developing it. So it might be easier, but you're also in play in business and that's also pretty hard to do too. So you're trying to keep that afloat yeah. and get new things into the world. So uh, maybe it has less scrutiny, but you're going to die if you don't solve the problem and meet the market anyway. Yeah, so, so you're out of job anyway. You're out of a job anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Then finally, I quite like Quint's point. We're saying actually if you look and um, if you look at how much is spent in research, we're not doing that bad. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the answer is here. I think we have to land on maybe a position which is, do we want to be good at this? I think mm. we can be good at mm. this. We have world-class research here. We mm. do a hell of we a do. lot of research for our small population. We do a lot on a lot less dollars. But I think what we have to decide as a country is, do we want to be good at this? And I think it's... It's more than a university play then. It's about, you know, the ecosystem coming together. But what I'll also say is that, you know, people talk about whole markets being good at this. The United mm -hmm. States, for example, mm -hmm. is really good at this. Actually, it's only a few universities that are really good mm -hmm. at it. And the rest pretty much are like the rest of the planet where commercialisation, you know, there's less thought about it, less, you know, less support for it. So I don't think we can just sort of say the US is great at this. There's some unis in the US that are good at this and probably the same for it. Israel and so on and so forth. So, Rom, there was one other thing. I, I pretty much noted down the same things you did, but the thing that also stood out to me was, you know, one thing that Z mentioned, and that was that we don't have a diverse industry here. Now, I think I read a report to say that we're pretty much again at the bottom of the run in terms of countries with diverse economies. I think we're equal to Senegal. Right? Right. So, you know, we have mining and a couple of other things. And I think that actually really hurts us when we need to think about commercialising all the different things that universities produce. If we don't have the industry here, we don't have the partnerships to take that research forward. So maybe we need mm. to think about that in a slightly different way. Not a small task. No. To diversify our economy and industry. No, but uh, Singapore did it yes. and, and Z talks mm. about that. So I think maybe that's one of the ideas on, you know, how we can get better at this. So maybe to close here, yeah, I'm super excited. We have gone out and interviewed a lot of other people and I'm looking forward to the next few episodes uh, where we're talking about the role of government, the role of universities, the role of culture in increasing or improving the way we commercialize our research, obviously the role of, of businesses as well. And we will also um, discover what other 
places or the universities or the countries have done. So that I'm super excited. Excellent. Thanks, Rom. Thanks, Natasha. Thank you everyone for listening to From University to Unicorns. There are many solutions that we do discuss in this podcast, but there's many that none of us have even thought about. We'd really love to keep this important discussion going by getting your thoughts and comments on our LinkedIn page, From University to Unicorns. Thanks so much.